You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. It's that time of year again. Time to pull your camera bag out of the closet and get ready for vacation photography, another season of Little League action and weekend photo joints. And on today's episode of the BNH Photography Podcast, John Harris, Todd Vorenkamp, and myself will be talking about spring cleaning, i.e., how to get your gear ready for another season of picture taking. After a break, we will present the second segment of our series, Dispatch with Adrian O'Hanison, as she updates us on her journey into Somalia, where she was embedded with African Union troops and on her life as a freelance photojournalist. As a reminder, if you're not a subscriber to our podcast, take a moment to sign up on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Android. And while you're there, leave a review and or comments. It means a lot to us. It helps us make the show that much better. And don't forget the B&H Photography Podcast landing page, which can be found on the B&H Explorer website. Let's start today's show with Al's Gearhead Pick of the Week. If you wish your Sony A7 series camera had a place to rest your pinky without having to add the weight and bulk of a full-blown battery grip on your camera, the Sony GP-X1EM grip extension is now in stock. Compatible with all Sony A7 series cameras as well as the new A9, this puppy caught my eye when it was first announced a few months ago. I like it because it provides enough real estate for the lower part of my right hand without making too much of a dent in the camera's weight or wonderfully svelte profile. If you agree with me on that point, check out Sony's new GP-X1EM grip extension. It goes for only $129.95, and it solves the problem for me and maybe you too. So... Unless you're a full-time photographer or a real weekend warrior, summer is the time of year we pack our camera bags and we head out on vacation to the beach or to all those picnics we have booked for between now and pumpkin picking season. So as we pull our gear out of the mothballs, we wonder, do we really need the new Sony A9? No, we really don't. Maybe you do. We don't. We've decided. Let's talk about a quick routine that will better ensure your camera gear will perform as advertised for the upcoming summer season. It's spring cleaning time at B&H Photography Podcast. Let's start with the camera bags. Chances are every single pouch and pocket, aside from having lenses and cameras in, is going to have like old receipts, caps, dead batteries, uh, remains of sandwiches and snacks, and God knows what else is in there. Empty everything out, dump the bag, clean it out. And before you put everything back in, okay, vacuum the whole thing out. All the corners, all the pouches, all of the pockets. And if you can, throw it in the machine and give it a wash, okay, or dry cleaner to something. Get it cleaned out because remember, all those little alien particles, if you leave them in there, will ultimately find their way into your camera and lenses. And that's a whole new uh, set of issues. Um, just as a little anecdote I'm going to throw in there, um, a few years ago, many years ago, my bag was getting kind of heavy and I decided to clean it out a little bit because it was just getting out of hand. And to my surprise, I found that both side pockets of my tender bag were filled with rocks. My kids decided it was a good place to keep rocks. And that was about three or four weeks of carrying those around <laughs> on assignment. So, yes, clean out your bag. That's number one. All that. right. Anything sure. to add to that, gentlemen? Well, uh, check the straps too. You know, and and you know where the uh, the hook with the bag and the straps yeah. meet and the hooks like that. Sometimes yep. you know you got to be careful; those don't break. Uh, mm -hmm. I actually just replaced mine. I just went and bought a new strap, shoulder strap only, uh, because it had frayed and the the padding was starting to wear out. Something to keep in mind. Yeah, good I point. Know, I know in my uh, Domkey bag the the pockets in the inserts are removable, mm -hmm. so make sure you pull those out because stuff gets through the cracks underneath uh, yeah. dirt and memory cards, pens, things like that. <laughs> yes. Sometimes money, so you yeah. can... Uh, <laughs> All that loose change. And by the way, yeah. change adds up for weight, too. You can buy a new lens eventually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so we have the cameras out there. Let's start with the cameras, things we have to do with it, okay? Take the battery out recharge all of your batteries. Um, if you have a tester that tells you how much of a life the battery has on a full charge, check it out. If you're, if you're using a battery that's more than a few years old, chances are it's not fully charging anymore. You might want to buy a new battery, okay? Uh, also, we sell, yeah, any, we, right? We were checking out yesterday that we do sell uh, a couple of battery testers that work for lithium-ion and for all, like, 40 different types of batteries. Uh, and uh, so it's not just 
you know, for your disposable batteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If again, if it just checks double A's and, and nine volts, you're it, it, you need something more, and we do carry them here. Well, we uh, and that's a good thing Z- to do. ZTS is the company that markets this battery tester, the MBT One Multi Battery Tester. Aha! It's definitely worth a look. Okay, there you go. Um, take out memory cards. Take all your memory cards. Gather them up. Archive the data, reformat them, get them nice and clean and up to speed. And while you're there, if the cards you're using are more than a few years old and you've upgraded cameras, say, two or three times, there is a chance that the card you have may not be up to spec. You might need a faster card. So look at what your camera requirements are. Look at what your cards are. If you need to upgrade, upgrade. And And probably since that time, the price of the faster card is less than what you paid for. Your oh, yeah. Card. Prices have dropped and a lot. storage size. Yeah. Without storage a doubt, size. yeah. No, no two ways about and it, that. there's a little voice in the back of your head that says, did I upload these photos from this card? Chances are you Chances didn't. Chances are you didn't. That's <laughs> correct. Very good point. <laughs> Just okay. double check before Very you good chance. Okay. Remember, before you hit that reformat thing, think, did I? Any doubt? You're better off having two copies than none. And for those that don't know, to find the reformat, you got to go to your tools menu. Well, at least on the Nikon, I'm sure it's the same on all cameras. You yep. go to the menu, you go to the tools, and you'll find a reformat option. It'll give you a couple warnings to make sure yes. that you want to reformat because it's going to wipe away all the data. Yes, it will. That's correct. Uh huh. Yep. But it's a good way to start kind the season. Of. No? If you could, you can actually format a card, and as long as you don't overwrite the old files, you can recover there. the stuff. There, Are you yeah. sure? I don't want to read yeah. when you it's erase not it. A, you can, not 100% but when you like that. Yep. Yep. I promise. Because I've done that. I've that I've ignored the little voice that said, did I upload those photos? No. And then I format the card, and then I'm like, ooh. And there is recovery software you can buy. You can buy the software. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not 100% foolproof, though. So if you've started to write new files, it's you're going to start losing old stuff. I think it's only with sepia photographs. Oh, yeah. They tend to fade quicker. <laughs> I think. I'm not sure. Um, your sensor, if you're shooting with a digital camera, your sensor invariably is going to get schmutz on it. Make sure it's clean, okay? Uh, if you're not sure what's going on, a very easy thing to do is take a picture of a white piece of paper, open it up on your screen, take it up to 100% and scroll through the entire image. You will find it. And also keep in mind that if you find a little booger stick there in the upper, say, left-hand corner, it's on the lower right-hand corner of the sensor. Everything is upside down and backwards. And there are a number if – you, if you cannot – there are places you could send your camera to have it clean for servicing. It's not too expensive. And if you want to give it a try yourself, uh, there are products that are sold. The easiest thing to do is just take one of those little air blowers, look like little turkey basters, give that a couple of uh, uh, hits. Um, one thing you do not want to do is take a can of compressed air and stick the nozzle in air and give it a shout because that's going to not, that's going to, it could sear your sensor, it can get little speckles all over it, and it can blow everything inside to pieces. So you don't want to do that. Uh, at arm's length at the very, very best. Any yeah. comments on that? No, yeah. I agree. Raise yeah. your hand if you've destroyed a camera well, sensor use- with a, uh, a can of air. I came close. I have not. I've, I've used those on my sensor, but from a distance. You know, like I kind of like sweep it by from from a good six inches outside of it. I hold them at arm's length with the camera over my head, aiming down, (laughs) and I, yeah, and that's the way I do it. Again, arm's length, and and you're okay. But those cans of compressed air are good for cleaning a lot of other aspects of the camera. Yes. Uh, By the way, if you're looking for a a nice little... a kit that is, I find very, very good for cleaning sensors. It's the uh, sensor swabs. They sell them. They're little wands with uh, either full frame, micro four thirds, or APS-C uh, swabs, and a fluid that will not affect the sensor. It's very easy to use. Read the instructions, uh, and, and you're good to go. I've had some very, very good results with uh, that particular kit. Um, now, that's caps. something you you guys are okay with that with with Todd with someone touching your sensor, cleaning your sensor like that. Do it at your own risk. That's what I'll say. That, that, uh, yes, I'll qualify <laughs> that. Yes, if you send it off to a repair place and something goes south, they're responsible. You do it yourself, you own it. Uh, or but it, you or know, send it to Alan. Send it to me. <laughs> 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 yeah, don't forget also a lot of cameras have, you know, an auto sensor cleaning function. Yes, yeah. and that, that, that's your vibration. first line of defense, yeah. and that's why they do it, absolutely. But it doesn't get everything. Also, okay, firmware. If you have a digital camera, invariably, uh, firmware is being upgraded all the time. Make sure you have the latest in your camera. Your camera will perform better. The newer the firmware, the better your camera will perform. Uh, Check your meter. 
run some tests, see if you're over or under. Most cameras are either a little bit over or under. No meter comes out 100% dead on. Anytime you get a new camera, you should always check it. And over time, recheck it, run a few tests, see how your highlights are, your, and just double check all of your exposures. If you have settings that you like to use, a lot of cameras have, you could put in presets that automatically go for there. If you've lent your camera out to somebody in the, since you've last used it, Make sure they haven't monkeyed around with your settings. If you're not sure, reset everything or go back to your presets. Uh, and also, I don't know if anybody in this room has a camera who, do you know every single trick this thing does? There's always something new to learn. If there's something in the meaning to master on your camera that you haven't done so, now's a good time to do it before the season comes up. Learn a few new tricks. Read yeah, the manual dig into the again. menu. Yeah, definitely. Anything to add, gentlemen? Uh, well, on cameras. I mean, yeah. well, the body of the camera, there's a lot, you know, obviously clean the outside, um, take a nice cloth around the outside of the mount. You know, you get a lot of stuff that sits on the outside of the mount. Um, I would do that. With alcohol and uh, cotton swabs, that would be good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, also yeah. another, here's another thing. Viewfinders, clean out the viewfinders. Yep. I always yeah. dry, I always lose the, the eyepiece that goes over the viewfinder. They always slide out. Often I, I lose them. I don't use them. Maybe the little, rubber... Eye cup? Yeah. 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 I have a collection of those that I've found in various tourist areas. <laughs> yeah, Half yeah. of them are John's, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm going to sell them If you back. ever wonder why he follows you around when you're out taking pictures, he's looking for those little things that you lose there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but also, the viewfinder itself, you want to make sure that oh, yeah. it's, you know, the focus is right on the viewfinder. Yes. Your yes. Yes. Um, something that is, is really, really neat little trick to do and something you should do. Uh, we're talking about cleaning the mount and things of that sort. Anytime that there is a contact, and this goes for batteries, where your contacts come from the battery to the camera part, take a soft pencil eraser and give a couple little circular wipes to all of those surfaces. The pencil eraser will not affect any. It will take off uh, layers of grit, dirt, grease, or whatever. Hit all that stuff. And the Give them a little tickle. The and the hot shoe yeah. box. Yeah. And you may want to check the, the hot shoe mount itself is not bent in. That happens often. Yep. And uh, you can usually you can just kind of re, you know bend it back in place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I do, whenever I'm going on a trip, I travel with a carry-on. And the other bag, I, my personal bag is my camera bag, and I put that under the seat in front of me. And then on a flight, I do all this cleaning. That's that's when I do most of my camera cleaning. It's yeah. on a flight. Oh, that's cool. So your neighbors love so, it. Yeah. I just I eat know. crackers they're and too whistle. Busy, they're too busy looking <laughs> at the TV in front of them instead of out the window. So they, don't, they have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> And it's not, it's not <laughs> like you're going to get... Me, would you hold this while I clean up my... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, anything else with cameras? Um, I don't know. Uh, check the rubber grips. Make sure they're in place. Lots of times your rubber grips start to get loose. And, you know, that's something that you probably would take for repair unless you have some nice super glue. I mean, I know on my hand grip, the rubber actually is starting to break off right now. And just like you uh, check your camera, the, off, the camera bag strap, check your camera strap. Yeah, for sure. You know, totally. that's a good time to upgrade. Make sure totally. it's not frayed. Make sure they're in, if there's mm -hmm. ring using D-rings, everything is, you know. Make sure your, mode switches, your mode switches are turned in properly mm -hmm. and adjustment. And I would say that's about it. You know, just run through everything else. Clean off the, your, your LCD in the back if you want. Yeah. Or just leave the thumbprints there if it makes you happy. You know, <laughs> some people don't like change. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's jump over to lenses. Uh, you know, I'm going to hit firmware again. There, there, we now have lenses that require firmware upgrades. So if that's the case, if you have a lens that does that, make sure you're up to date. Clean your lenses. All right. Uh, soft micro cloths or lens tissue. Don't use an old rag because God knows what it's made out of or what's clinging to it. Uh, the, the, the surfaces of the lens coatings can be damaged. You don't want to hit it with anything at all. Todd, go ahead. Lens tissue and lens cleaner. That's what you need to clean your lenses. Mm -hmm. If you're out on a shoot and you do have to clean your lens, say you get some dust or a smudge or something, and you don't have lens cleaning fluid, at the very least, breathe on the surface of the lens before you do it because never, ever, ever try to clean a lens dry. Always get some kind of a moisture on there. And even right. just breathing gently on it and then cleaning it, that little bit of moisture does make a difference. Go in circular motions. And by the way, if you're using lens tissue, throw it away afterwards or leave it in the bottom of the pot of the bag you just cleaned out so you'll have something to clean out next The, the phones are lighting up because there's <laughs> a bunch of people that believe that the pH of the condensation from your mouth is such that over time, it will corrode the coatings of your lens. Yeah. I will admit on live podcasts that I have often 
breathed on a lens and used a T-shirt and had no ill effects from doing that. Uh, by the way, I do that but, frequently. In fact, um, cotton, cotton t-shirt. T-shirts, are, yeah. there's nothing wrong with it. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. If you've been wearing it for a few weeks, I might say look for a clean corner. But seriously, uh, um, anything <laughs> like a soft cotton material is perfectly fine as long as it's clean. And soft. And if, not, yeah. not, you know, I mean, honestly, yeah. that is a difference. I mean, you get this uh, you know, brand new t-shirt. Oh, yeah. If it's I mean, starched or anyway, forget yeah. about it. We're talking about some, you know, the kind of stuff that just feels like it, yeah. you're at home as soon well, as you put it on. Gla- it's good. Glass is a durable Material lens coatings are durable. I like I I would we should have the guy who has breathed on his lens so much that it burned through the coating in on the podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> to like and it, smell his breath. Like it, I, think, I mean, there's the the exact right way to do things, and then yeah. there's the way that we all can do them when we need to do yeah. them. I mean, that's yeah. life. By the way, here's a little thing. I'm a tip I'm going to throw out there, and you can't always do it. You used to, if you have a mechanical linkage on the apertures, uh, a- aperture blades of your lens, it's an easy thing to do, and that is take the lens off the camera and look th- peer through it, and try to open and close the apertures. What you do is if you set it down to the smallest aperture, bf uh, 11, 16, 22, and then flip it so that it it repeatedly opens and closes. Watch the blades, make sure that they're opening and closing evenly, and that when they do stop down to whatever stop you have it to, it's the same size opening or extremely close to it and the same format. If you repeatedly uh, open and close your diaphragm blades and you find that every time you stop it down, there's a different shape to the opening and different size, that means your blades are hanging up and that means that you have no exposure consistency uh, and, and it throws a lot of things in. That's also a really good tip if you're buying a used lens. That's one way of checking. You just flip them up and down. They should open and close quickly, easily, and to the same size and same shape uh, opening. So right. always do that. And if they're not, don't try to repair them yourself. Don't <laughs> try to, yeah, don't breathe on it and polish it with a cloth. It's not going to make a let, difference. Uh, let me go back to cleaning for a second. The um, dust and stuff on the front element is barely will barely affect image it's quality. Negative. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, the rear element is where you can kind of get some strange things going on. I I once had a smudge on my rear element, didn't know it, and I was getting, I was doing low light night stuff, and I was getting really weird halation. Yeah, stuff yeah. like it was just something was I couldn't figure out what it was, and then I took the lens off, and there was a big thumbprint on the rear element, and that was yeah. If you had that same print on the front, it would yeah. kind of be just lost in it, but the, the rear element. That's your projection lens. That's what projects all that information to the sensor. And if it's messed up, your picture's messed up. If you think about when you put sunglasses on, if your sunglasses have scratches or dust or something on it, it doesn't doesn't mean you can't drive down the street because you can see everything through your sunglasses. Same thing on the front element. You can have a considerable amount of junk on the front element element of your lens, and you're not going to see that show up on the image. So, Yeah, just to clarify this thing about checking the apertures, okay – uh, if you have to have a manual f-stop ring, a, a manual diaphragm ring, in which to do this, where you could physically you know, take a ring in, on the lens and open and close it, or some lenses, like Nikon lenses, a little linkage. If you look in the back of the lens, that if you flip it, just flick it with your finger, it snaps the lens open and close very, very quickly, as fast as you can move your finger. It's opening and closing, and I find that's the way I like checking it. Rapidly click it, open and close, the auto and just keep diaphragm watching. Pin. Auto diaphragm linkage pin. pin. Yes. So I would not lose too much sleep at this, but it's worth checking. Also, you know, if uh, lenses, if you use them a lot, they could start getting a little bit loose. If you notice a little bit of wobble and play in your lens, you know, at the end of last season, the, either the way it went onto your camera the, from the mount or uh, the zoom or focus barrel, okay, now's a good time to have it uh, corrected. Send it off to a shop, have it tightened up, have it repaired because it's not going to get better this year. Uh, and in fact, it start affecting the image quality and you went through all this yeah, trouble. Yeah, you definitely want to check if there's, if the mount and if the camera and the lens are not connected well, then you definitely need to, yeah, uh, take yeah, a look you at have it. to do that. Filters. Did you lose anything last year? Did you crack or, or bend anything last year? Or did last year did, was there? A, did you find yourself saying, "I really wish I had a polarizer that would fit this or something"? Now's the time to update your filters. Rings. If you're using step down rings or step up rings to adapt different filters, different lenses. Do you have all the rings you need? Now's a good time to check your inventory, see what it is that you need so that when you do head out the door, no matter what you see, you will be able to capture that onto film, as they used to say. You know what would be cool if somebody could make a step-up, step-down ring that was variable on the inside and the outside so you could have, just have one hmm. and it would do any size? Ben? 
Gonna After think. lunch, let's get on that. <laughs> yeah. What do you say? Okay, it's a short day. Just keep that. But in yeah, mind. definitely. I'm uh, I mean, I lose, I, lose a lens, I lose a lens cap once yeah. every other month, so you know that's a time to re-up your lens caps. I have a collection of lens caps too. <laughs> John has dropped around the city. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and, and, I, and I, you know, and I crack a UV protector filter every now and again too. So you that's know, why you, you bought that. them because yeah. it's that or your I do lens. not collect. Absolutely. I do not collect those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so make sure you check on those. Uh, Tripods. I don't know about you, but uh, my tripod, once or twice a year, I have to tighten everything down. If your tripod came with a little wrench, there's a reason why they gave it to you. Uh, check to see that everything is locked down right. If you find that the legs are starting to like just flop around instead of just being firmly in place, invariably there is a little adjustment that you can do with either some kind of a screw or a lock nut or something. Tighten everything down. Check everything out. Um Depending on what kind of extension legs you have, you might want to clean the threads if they are uh, uh, thread locked. Grit can get in there. You might want to clean them out, maybe put a little bit of a, a, a greaser or some kind of appropriate lubricant in there. Uh, you know, double check before you throw something in there. And if you have a carbon fiber tripod, make sure whatever you do put in there won't dissolve it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you put in there? <laughs> Scotch. Scotch. <laughs> I tell you, Scotch. Scotch, but you use it for a number of things. Uh, <laughs> any other thoughts about maintenance for, uh, we got well, batteries, you know, flash units. If you, uh, if you have flip locks and you bring it to the beach, you're probably oh, going to okay. end up with sand. Yeah, with sand in it. So you're going to have to either clean it really well or even disassemble it and clean it. Yeah. Um, if you're disassembling it, take pictures with your smartphone so you know what parts go where. Very good advice. Definitely. Because, yeah. uh, Nothing like reassembling a tripod and finding a small pile of parts. <laughs> yes, yes. Also, if you do have a lot of little parts, and this goes for you know uh, cameras, lens, but even tripods, a lot of little pieces. Okay, as you remove them, make sure you have a hubcap from a 1964 VW. <laughs> They're perfect dishes for holding these things. Nothing will roll <laughs> off. Okay, 63, 64 seems to be the best year. <laughs> well, uh, I was about to say flash units. You know, you probably want have had wanted to pull out the batteries before you put it in the storage. Oh yeah. But definitely make sure there's not some corrosion inside with your disposable batteries. Um, and put in new ones, make sure it's working. And also, uh, wherever those batteries go, take out that little pencil eraser in, in the yeah. flash too. Yeah. Hit every single one of those contact points because that could make or break the whole shot. No it, two ways about it. And if you are a seasonal shooter and you're re literally breaking out your camera bag for the summer, I highly encourage you to shoot next winter because yeah. you can do some cool stuff when it's cold out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, so anything different for like a point and shoot? I mean, or, or mirrorless that would would apply would not apply to this? I don't I think. No, like on the point, you're just, you're just cleaning the outside yeah. and the lens. It's, yeah. It's much more simple. I think it's right. No matter what kind of camera you're using, if it's interchangeable yeah. lenses, mm -hmm. whatever, I think it's all the same. Mirrorless. Yeah. I don't think there's any. I know criteria. a lot of people with mirrorless are having huge dust issues, but I. I've been shooting Fuji for a few years. I honestly have less dust on my Fuji sensor, which is, it's a mirrorless, so it sees the sky a lot more than a uh, DSLR. I don't know. That's another thing, the mirror. You want to take a look at your mirror, make sure yeah. it's kind of cleaned off, you know? Oh, oh yeah. mirror, cleaning mirrors. If you're shooting with a DSLR, anything with a mirror in it, okay? And don't, if you can clean the, if you can clean the focus. Don't prism. wipe it, okay? No. You have to keep something in mind. This is not a mirror. It is a mirrored surface. That's actually mirror material on top of the glass, and it is extremely scratchable. Okay, you don't want to go in there with a napkin, a t-shirt, anything. Okay, uh, a little air blow is the most you want to do. Uh, and if there's something you can't get out of the way, it might be visually distracting when you're looking right, to but find it. But be aware, it's Sorry. never going to yeah. be on your picture. It's not like dust on a sensor. That mirror flips up out of the way. Okay, and and, and it's not part of the issue. So it could be visually annoying. Adapt to it rather than go in there and try to do something that might really mess up that mirror. Same thing with dust on your focus screen. It's yes. not going to show up. That's mm -hmm. a, a common thing. A lot of people come to camera stores saying, oh, my God, when I look through the camera, it's so dirty. But it's not. Yeah. That's just uh, the stuff you're looking through, not what's on the on You may want to check out your the thread on the bottom of your camera where your tripod mount is to make sure that's in good shape. Mm -hmm. you know, so you can get your tripod in there. You may want to look at your ports, uh, your whatever you have, your USB or your HDMI. Make sure they're all clean and, and there's no pro problems, no corrosion. 
I think in general, if you are actively shooting or say you're just even a summer shoot or whatever the case may be, think about what you were dealing with last year when you were on vacation, when you were out shooting, uh, something that might've struck you, I wish I did, I wish I had, I wish I could. Think about those things and figure out what do I have to do now to incorporate that into uh, my, my gear or my workflow so that this year when I go out, when you go out, when we go out, we could approach photography with a fresh face again. I think that's an important thing. Uh, it's a new season coming up, um, and it's a new chance to go out there and maybe try some things that we've been thinking about trying. Maybe over the winter you saw some photographs in a magazine, a book, or, or somewhere online. You say, oh, man, that's awesome. I would, I'd love to try something like that. Well, Maybe go back, look at it, figure it out, and say, what do I need to actually do that and give it a shot? Or give your own, you know, turn on the subject. There's tons of tutorials out there now, obviously, oh, yeah. for anything you want to, you know, shoot, night photography, yeah. you know, wide angle, macro, you know, you name let, it. Let me say, when it comes to, like, camera and lens cleaning, things like that, remember, I guess it's nice to have a pretty set of gear that looks brand new, but the camera is a tool, the lenses are tools. Mm-hmm. If you use them, they will show the signs of use. So if paint gets chipped off or the rubber gets worn out or, you know, that's all part of the life of, of a camera. Yeah, honor, it's, a, think, it's yeah. actually cool in a sense. So don't, you know. Don't sweat the small yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's a tool. It's I like actually, it, I nobody just, checks the end of a screwdriver to see if it's been scratched after you screw in a screw, you know. I, like, I was just over at a repair shop nearby and a lady came in uh, with, like you were saying, with yeah. dust on the f just underneath the front element, and she was all worried about it. And the guy's like, "Don't worry about it. It's not going right. to." She's like, "Oh, I didn't know." You know, so there's, yeah. you don't need to worry about every little thing. And do remember that when you do put your head on the pillow at night, Teddy might be missing an eye and might be threadbare and worn, but Teddy still loves you. <laughs> it's a tool. <laughs> We better cut soon. I'm getting scared. <laughs> well, another thing that we didn't mention, it's not, it's, not, it's not camera, but, you know, you may want to recalibrate your monitors. You may want to look at... That's, oh, a, that's yeah. a whole other issue. That's but, a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah but, that's uh, an extension. This, this is just a starting yeah, point. Yeah, this is just Absolutely. kind of spring cleaning, getting yourself ready to go. You just got enough information to keep you busy for the rest of the afternoon, all right? You're okay. Um, all righty. Well, thank you very, very much, John, and thank you, Todd. When we return the second segment of our Serial Dispatch with Adrian O'Hannison, stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. We are back. Since 2010, photojournalist Adrian O'Hannison has covered crises in South Sudan, Darfur, and Somalia, and has been recognized as one of Magnum Photo's top 30 under 30. In 2016, she won a World Press Photo Award for her work in Darfur and the Anja Niedringhaus Courage in Photojournalism Award. This year, Ahanasin was selected as one of PDN's 30 new and emerging photographers, and once a month, we check in with Adrian to update us on her assignments in crisis zones and on her life as a freelance photojournalist. In the previous segment, Adrian spoke of photographing a four-year-old Somali boy who is currently living in Kenya, trying to gain refugee status and be reunited with his mother in the U.S. On today's segment, Adrian will be discussing her trip to Somalia to cover the ongoing conflict with al-Shabaab and the drought in the northern part of the country. She reports on those assignments, a last-minute trip to South Sudan, and discusses the complications of being a freelancer trying to balance earning a paycheck, maintaining access, and reporting on the stories that interest her within the often conflicting agendas of NGOs, aid organizations, and news outlets. Here's Adrian. I'm back home in Nairobi after a whirlwind month that ended up taking me from Mogadishu in Somalia up into Puntland, northern Somalia, and then I hopped over to Uganda, drove to the border of South Sudan in northern Uganda to cover the refugee crisis. So it's been a bit of a crazy month, but first I kind of want to go back to the story of Mohammed because that was just such a fun story to work on, but also a really important story affecting both East Africa well, actually, everywhere in the world at this point in terms of the migration and refugee crises. After this story went out, there is now a human rights group that is working 
with Mohammed and trying to make sure that all of his paperwork is in line before that he can go to the States. He's still in Kenya, unfortunately, but if the paperwork goes through, this human rights organization will help fund his trip to the U.S. And that would just be incredible to see. And hopefully we can follow him on that journey. I also wanted to discuss one of the images that was taken for this piece that was published on Vice because I don't often sneak images. I want people to know what I'm doing and understand what I'm doing because I believe it's it's really an exchange. Also, a lot of places that I work are not necessarily conflict zones, but places that people might not understand what my role is. And um, I want people to to know what that role is and and for it to be clear. So one of the images that I ended up taking while I was working on the story with Mohammed was a photograph of him standing off to the right in the frame, but then in the center of the frame, there's a back of a security guard and he's standing in a doorway and he's standing in this doorway of a cage. It was a place that people came in Nairobi to register as refugees. And Kenya, for a while now, has been going back and forth on whether or not they want the Somali refugees. Kenya has troops inside of Somalia fighting al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab has been targeting Kenya since that presence in Somalia. So a lot of people are coming here, many of them Somalis. Um, You have South Sudanese, Congolese, Ethiopians, Eritreans people from all over the region, really, but they come to this place to put in applications or check up on their applications to get refugee status in Kenya. So this building, like many buildings in Kenya, it's just concrete walls, and you walk in, and it looks like it could be any government building, but then you see these cages. And there's really no reason for the cages because there's a courtyard, and then you have the cages in the courtyard, and the courtyard is cement, so it's not like people are going to jump over walls or anything. And I knew when I walked in there, because it was a government facility, that I probably wasn't going to be able to photograph. And I also knew that many of the people in there may or may not have any legal status in the country. I don't know their backgrounds. I don't know what they're fleeing. So I knew first it was going to be hard because I didn't want to show people's faces um, without their permission. So how is this going to go? And so I knew I probably only had a couple of seconds, if that, to try to make an image. And it was something that I knew was really important for the story, so I just had to go for it. And what I've learned in most situations, actually, and it's something I'm trying still to be more conscious of, because I think we tend to, or I tend to, walk into a situation and I kind of try to figure out what's going on first. And I'm trying to skip that step now because I, I want to just photograph exactly what's happening when I come upon a situation. And I think both aspects are important, but the problem is you lose, you lose that moment. You lose, um, that untouched scene. And that's not something you're going to get back. It's something you have to react to right away. And I'm, I'm a slow person. I do everything slowly. So I walked into this scene and I I knew this was going to happen. And it was great because Mohammed walked in. I couldn't have really instructed him to do anything better, really. He walked into the scene. He stood outside the gate. Thank goodness the security guard had his back to me. And he was standing right in the middle of this doorway. And I got two frames. The first frame is the one that was used in the piece. And the second frame, the security guard had started to turn around. That's when I put my camera down and tried to explain that I was there with Mohammed. I was following Mohammed. I didn't want anyone's photographs that were there besides um, Mohammed's. I just think it's a good example when it's necessary to push the boundaries. Um, But I also think it's important that, you know, if... I re- you could really see the identities of people in that image. There's lots of reasons why I wouldn't have used that image had it turned out differently. I think I just got lucky um, in the composition of it, absolutely, but that um, nobody was identifiable and 
um, the security guard's back was to me, not just so I could hide his identity, but because he, he couldn't see me either. I just wanted to, to talk about that a bit. And really it's just about being conscious of your, of your surroundings and, um, aware of, of your subjects or people who may be subjects kind of accidentally as the scene, as the scene develops. But I did want to go back to that previous point I was mentioning, whereas you have these two different scenes, you have the scene that you're not affecting because you just walk in and you can get everyone really naturally. But then you also need to capture what's happening in front of you as you learn it. People often repeat the same motions, whether they're talking or whether they're doing some sort of activity, maybe they're grinding grain or fishing or paddling. Um, I obviously just picked things that have repetitive motions, but even when people are speaking, um, you, you can see they'll do the same things. They'll, they'll wipe their eye in the same way, or they'll scratch again if, if something is bothering them, anything. So it's really important to spend time in places to see people's activity and, and these repeated motions, because I think when you, when you observe these things, you can, you can fit them together and you can play with that a bit more. But I think I do need to get better at just reacting and catching something before I become part of the scene. I'd been discussing the planned trip into Somalia to embed with the AU forces and also try to cover the drought. And so both of those things were, were successful, um, as successful as they could be. Um, I actually can't ask for anything more. Everything went, went quite well and smoothly. So I ended up spending a few days in Mogadishu um, on an embed with the African Union forces um, inside of Mogadishu. And then we ended up going out and spending two nights. It was supposed to be one night, but it ended up being two nights because of some communication issues, not on the part of the journalists. We ended up going out and spending a night on a forward operating base. That was good just to, to get out into the field a little bit. You're just so constrained by security. Um, so there were four of us, myself, the writer I was with, and two other women um, for the first part of it. There was this communications issue, and um, it was something we weren't aware of. We were operating in a military setting. As journalists, we're not always aware, or I'm learning to be more aware, but we're not always aware of how the military operates. Um, so... The communications office hadn't gone to the higher up um, people in charge. And within the military, it's always orders come from the top. And if the top isn't informed, the process kind of falls apart. In Somalia, you just never know. Sometimes I wonder if it's we don't have all of the intelligence or we often say everything is fine until it's not. So you can be in these places and it feels so quiet and people are just going about their daily business on the street. They're, you know, farming or herding goats or selling watermelons. Everything looks normal until it's not, until there's an attack. And most of the attacks um, are targeted African Union forces. So this is, this adds another element of danger um, besides the fact that um, I'm an American woman and um, would be a target for kidnapping. But now I'm embedded with the military. The military is a target. But when I was there, it was quiet. Um, spent the night on the base and ended up going on a night patrol, some of the forces. And it was a joint patrol. So the African Union is assisting the Somali National Army. So they'll move around together through the towns to see if there's any activity going on at night. Um, but also mainly just to have a presence so that nothing can happen at night. So it's more difficult for people to move around or um, anything like that. So I went out on a night patrol and um, set up checkpoints along the road. They were searching cars, moving in and out of Mogadishu. Yeah, and every, everything is quiet. And it's kind of like going for a night drive in the countryside where all you can see is the headlights. It's hard because there are no lights except from the trucks and the streetlights. So photographing is difficult and there's not much activity there. But we were able to go back into Mogadishu and inside of Mogadishu, 
we got to go out on a night patrol um, with the special forces, which was quite interesting to see. More interesting to see the lives of these soldiers, and that's something I've tried to focus on, and I don't think I've had much success, um, again, because of the security constraints. But um, so the special forces have kind of taken up residence in an old stadium. And yeah, so you have, and the stadium is kind of blown to pieces. It's still intact, but there are large holes in it where you can see explosive, explosives have hit it. And, you know, the bleachers are still there, but there's random pieces of cars and um, bullet holes and everything. It's quite a scene, but there's still a track inside. So you see these soldiers jogging around and it's kind of like an abandoned hotel slash abandoned workout facility. So then under the bleachers, you have soldiers living and there's light coming in in all these strange places because of the bullet holes or the explosives that have hit the walls. So it's really a spectacular space. I would just love to stay there for a week and and live with these soldiers and, and photograph them. Something I've been pushing to do, but same thing. Security is really tight. I don't think it would be well, we'll see. Maybe that's for the future. But um, we started We started there. We had a meeting under the, the bleachers of the stadium uh, and then went out with the special forces. And this was a Ugandan force that we were with for the night. Stopping cars in the streets. And it was strange. And, and you understand how this military presence really affects people on the ground because people are just trying to drive home at night or... You know, they have kids in the car and all of a sudden you have military figures um, making them open windows and get out of the car and all of that. And and it's frightening. I always look at things or try to look at things time and again from the perspective of a child as to, you know, I'm just doing this simple activity. Why? Why is this happening to me? And I think a lot of times if you're a child and you don't know what's going on, something, something's often not right. And the reason that we wanted to spend time uh, in these settings, it was part of the drought story because it says a lot about the security of the country and the situation of the country. If people aren't safe, if your country isn't stable, then the rest of life kind of disintegrates. So this was this was one way to illustrate the instability uh, of the country. The next place that we flew to, so we flew from Mogadishu up to Puntland, and Puntland basically operates independently. They will claim that the al-Shabaab, um, the main threat in Mogadishu, is not present in Puntland. And this, at the time, was kind of the, the center of the drought. If you looked on the map, this was the, the red area in the center of Puntland. And we're talking about an area that's basically just on the horn of Africa, that piece that sticks out uh, just below the Red Sea. We wanted to get the situation of the drought up in Puntland. And we wanted to explore what what that meant to the people there. Um, it often seems quite straightforward. You know, there's no rain, so there's a drought. So somehow between drought, there's no there's no food. Um, and the easiest example of that is is there's just no rain, so there's no there's no crops. But there are lots of other reasons for this to happen and and the people in this area rely heavily on their on their livestock and people were losing their animals at a surprising rate i think 60 to 70 percent of the livestock has passed away we found kind of an interesting situation or i i was shocked by it because i didn't expect to see food in the markets but what i found there was food in the markets um there were some vegetables there were some fruits um but I also found that you had people who are so reliant on their animals that honestly, they don't even really need any form of currency. They only need their animals. And so they wouldn't have money to buy the food. They're purely reliant on their livestock. So once you lose your livestock, that's it. It's difficult to to illustrate these things, but I I did my best. We, We were driving along and you could see the carcasses of of goats and camels along the road. Some had passed away um, as they were walking, but 
a majority had been loaded on trucks to try to truck the animals um, to new locations where maybe there was rain or, or vegetation, and they had passed away in the trucks, so the trucks would kind of throw the animals off, which is a, a strange image to see, but it, it was kind of like people throwing <laughs> throwing trash out the windows of cars. You just see, like, goats or, yeah, and that's what was happening. There were literally just goats being tossed off off trucks, and it, it's just a very odd, sad sad scene and it makes it so much worse when you know that communities are 100% reliant on these animals and that's that's very hard to to explain to people but it, it's the truth for many of the people in this area so what we also found was that because many of these people are semi-nomadic they're out in the desert they're quite isolated from each other they don't travel in big groups they'll travel in mainly just families with their animals. But what we were starting to find is people were moving closer to main roads. And something that I found crushing as well was that people would move to a main road and and geocars would pass by or water trucks would pass by. And other people who had lost the majority or all of their animals would see people lined up across the road and would come also thinking, well, these people have settled here Maybe they're here for a reason. Maybe they're here because there's food or maybe here they're here because there's water or maybe they're receiving some sort of help. So you'd get these communities of, or new communities of two, 300 people along roads all gathering because they saw others, but then no help would arrive. And again, this was still kind of in the beginning of this process. Um, international organizations were still trying to keep track of how many people were in which place and to see if they could reach um, reach these groups of people along the roads. So this ties into a whole other larger issue of migration and flows of people in and out of Africa, basically people whose homelands are not inhabitable anymore. And I think this is something we're going to have to we're going to have to face up to. I think. Europe is feeling this a bit more than in the States, but people are going through extreme measures to leave their homelands. They don't want to leave their homelands, but what do you do when you can't live in your homeland anymore? So after I got back from Somalia, I think I just had a couple of days in Nairobi before I got shipped off to Uganda, northern Uganda, to cover the South Sudanese refugee crisis. Um, people who are flowing over the border from South Sudan into Uganda. Uh, I got an email one evening from the International Rescue Committee basically asking me to leave the following day um, to Uganda. So I hopped on a plane, (laughs) drove the entire length of the country, flew into the south, drove to the north. It was about a 10-hour drive. I thought the driver was joking when I got in the car, but it wasn't a joke. It was over 10 hours. Um, so I drove the entire length of the country up to the border of South Sudan. And I actually have worked a lot in South Sudan, but I've never worked with South Sudanese refugees outside of the country. And I was seeing them get off of buses into a refugee camp for the first time. People are exhausted. They've, they've come on foot a long way. Um, so they come on foot across the border and then at the border, um, UNHCR supplies buses that will bring them to a registration center and then they'll be resettled in a camp. And they're actually not calling it a camp. They're calling it a settlement. Um, camps, I guess, imply that people are really squished together and it's some, something temporary. Um, these settlements, people are given a, a sizable piece of of land, um, nothing that South Sudanese are used to um, in their homeland, but um, so it's not not structured as some of the images we see with lines of tents. It's actually very well organized. You know, vegetation is left, and people have some space. So just documenting this process of people basically starting a life again, and I was not prepared for the amount of people that were flowing into this registration center. Um, again, it, it was well organized. People 
go through health checks. The Ugandan government is registering people. They're doing all the biometrics. So they're um, fingerprinting people um, all digitally, doing eye scans, um, ages, locations, family members. But that takes time. That takes a steady internet connection. We're up on the border of Uganda and South Sudan. There's hardly any infrastructure. So this is, you're basically building a new city. Uh, we were seeing anywhere from 2,500 to 4,800 people crossing per day. Not all those people would make it to the registration center. But in one day, we had 4,800 people flowing into Uganda. And I don't think I've seen that many people anywhere before, maybe at a concert. But you have people flowing in with children and nowhere to go. And um, I mean, everyone in that camp, national and international staff, government and non-government were doing their best to, to help people out. But again, it's one of those situations where this, this conflict in South Sudan, I don't know if it's going away anytime soon. A lot of people were very hopeful around independence in 2011, that things were going to be stable. Um, a lot of these people have already been refugees once. They went back, got their independence as a country, and now, honestly, from talking to people, they've given up a bit. And um, they know what it's like to be a child in a conflict zone and, and don't want that for their children. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think people have a choice, honestly, at this point. They're being resettled in Uganda. I want to discuss a bit about working in Somalia because I think it provides a couple interesting points and examples of life as a freelancer. The first being it's very expensive to operate in Somalia it's very expensive to operate in Somalia because it's very dangerous to operate in Somalia. Mainly the first point is an issue as a freelancer. It's expensive. And I feel like that is more of an issue when I'm pitching stories or throwing ideas around with publications is that um, they don't necessarily, um, maybe they don't want to pay for security or the rates uh, that it costs for security, or maybe they don't have the money, or maybe also sometimes it's put forward that they don't want to take the responsibility of sending anyone into a dangerous area. And I understand all of these things. It's fairly straightforward. My frustration with this has been, and I've, I've voiced this a number of times, even to rooms of, of editors who are assigning these very stories, that my frustration is that of the emails that I get that say, yes, we're very interested in this story. It sounds great. We would love to see material when you get back. In fact, we will take material. Sometimes they say, if you get back, which isn't really reassuring. Um, they should have a little more confidence in, in me, at least, if they're going to send me in or expect me to go in with no assignment. But that's really frustrating. And um, it's not something I've really been able to figure out. I mean, if, if there's not funding or people don't want to send you in, then they don't want to send you in. And then you're left with a choice as a freelancer, which I think can often look irresponsible for a freelancer, which is that, okay, so you go into these places with no assignment and nobody backing you. So if something does go wrong... Um, Who's going who's gonna to stand up for you? Who's going to say, yes, you know, I asked this journalist to go in? Or if you're taken, even questioned by a government, what are you doing here? Who are you working for? And, you know, you have three publications that have told you that they'll take material. Can you give out their phone numbers when a government official is asking? You know, are you going to support me when it really comes down to it? Um, but yeah, you have to make this decision, which is, do I go in and do the work and try to sell it after, or do I just not go in? And I actually think this year, for some reason, I'm starting to feel frustrated with my status as a freelancer because of this very issue, which is that I have stories that I want to do. I have the ability 
to organize those stories logistically. I can basically go and do these stories. I just need the support because, again, the places I'm operating or the places I want to operate, the places I know how to operate are expensive and they're dangerous. Um, so this has been, honestly, it's been, it's been frustrating for me with these issues because I've been in the region a long time. But that's definitely a frustration. So with the Somalia stories, because I ended up um, submitting photographs to three different outlets, and I have to say, I don't think I covered my costs, to be honest. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I broke even. Um, which again, it's, I mean, another challenge as a freelancer, is it worth, I mean, this is, this is a job. Um, I do do this for a living. So is it worth, first of all, going in and taking the risk if I don't know if I can publish things, but also going in and taking the risk and not making money. And I know a lot of us are passionate about this work and it's not, well, it's obviously nobody does this for the money. Um, but it is, it is a factor. It's a hundred percent a factor because a lot of people cannot work in Somalia if they don't have the funding to back it up. My point here is that I did go more or less self-assigned. I had a few organizations that said, um, sure, we'll take material. So I ended up doing a story with a writer and this was a fairly certain story when we went in for Vice. But again, expenses weren't all covered. They helped us with expenses. Um, and then I ended up doing a slideshow for Al Jazeera and a couple of photos for for Erin. So that that's three outlets, but again, you know, minimum photos um, for Erin and really had to try to shoot two different stories when I was working for the two different outlets for Vice and for Al Jazeera. But again, even with those three outlets and not I'm not covering expenses and I'm not sure any news organization would have sent me for that amount of time and it takes time to get to get significant photos so it's really difficult and luckily in Puntland we went around with an organization with an NGO so that helps significantly but another issue I've had specifically with Somalia and again we Somalia I'm using as an example for other areas that are quite dangerous and expensive to operate in, which is that we now see organizations hiring professional photographers or videographers and going in and doing work for the organization. And the organization will put that material online free of charge to news outlets, which makes a freelancer's life miserable. It doesn't only make the freelancer's life miserable. I think it also cuts down on the coverage of the place because, fine, if you have NGOs, international organizations coming out and saying there's drought in Puntland, these are the things that's happening, you can describe it a bit, but if you're giving out free material, free images and free video footage... I've actually on this trip had a news outlet cancel the trip because they could just grab footage off of NGOs websites. I know you're, you know, we all have the same goals more or less, which is to get these stories out. But as an organization, you do have an agenda, which I think we all need to keep in mind. But you may be, you may in fact be hurting the coverage of these locations by professional journalists, professional photographers, professional videographers. So this is this is something I'm struggling with as well because honestly, sometimes if the if the outlets don't have the funding, or the freelance journalists don't have the funding to get to these remote, dangerous, expensive locations to operate, maybe the only footage of people who are most affected by the drought or most affected by the famine in South Sudan. Maybe this is the only footage that's going to come out and maybe we should all keep in mind that 
the goal is to get the information out. So this whole idea of journalists working with um, the UN or NGOs has come up a lot in the last couple of months, especially with the crisis in Somalia and the war and uh, famine in South Sudan. But again, I think we're also we're reliant on these organizations and definitely the UN in places like South Sudan. Um, we have no choice but to get access with people who can provide security and honestly help help with costs, getting on UN flights, um, going with UN cars. In South Sudan, many of the internally displaced people are actually inside of UN camps. So this, we're working daily um, with organizations and the UN who are, I don't want to say running these places, but in South Sudan actually are running the largest cities in South Sudan at this point because they have so many people who are more or less trapped in these camps or cannot go out of the camps because they fear for their lives. So there's definitely a relationship there. I just think it's, it's something we really have to think about as journalists. And it's something I think international NGOs need to be more conscious about. Thank you, Adrian. Well, that puts a wrap on another fine episode. We want to extend our continuing gratitude to Adrienne O'Hanneson for her work with us. And we also want to remind you that we still have a promotion running until June 15th on all Icolite underwater housings. Enter BH Podcast 17, that's BH Podcast 17, for a 10% discount on Icolite camera housings. Join us next week for part two of our underwater photography episode and stay tuned for our upcoming interviews from the floor of Optic 2017. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes and visit our landing page at bhphoto slash explorer slash podcast. For John, Jason, and Todd, I'm Alan Weitz. Thank you so much for tuning in today. <laughs>